Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. I'm Alpha. I'm Anoush. And I'm Stephen. And you're listening to the New Statesman podcast. On today's episode, we discuss the budget and you ask us, has Nicola Sturgeon done enough to save her career? So Rishi Sunak delivered the much anticipated budget yesterday, setting out his plans for the last bit of the coronavirus crisis, he hopes, extending things like furlough for a bit but then basically announcing an end to the universal credit uplift, an eventual end to the furlough scheme, and eventually tax increases and cuts. Did we all enjoy budget day? Stephen, should I start with you? What do you think are the the key takeaways from this? The key t- takeaways are twofold. Firstly, austerity is back both, well, I should say both in rhetoric and in fact. Actually, there's a really interesting debate here i think which is that if you look at the detail not not of what he said but the detail of what's actually in the budget right this is an incredibly austere budget because it has a large number of tax rises because the freezes in the various thresholds on income tax benefits are all tax rises right freezes in fresh thresholds actually interestingly the corporation tax rise where i'm just like mm, is that really going to happen i doubt it somehow it just feels like something that they can have, which will make all of their fiscal forecasts look a bit better. The corporation tax rise will have the same role as these cuts will be grandfathered into universal credit did under George Osborne, with then about £4 billion of extra cuts on top of what was already baked in to the previous end of austerity. Sorry, I don't know why I persist in doing air quotes with my hands in a an audio medium, but uh, but I do. I just did air quotes there on the end of austerity. Now, there are two ways to look at that four billion. One is to essentially do what um, you know, a variety of, of really interesting people, you know, Jonathan Hopkin, really worthwhile economist following if you're, if you're on Twitter, the head of the IFS, Paul Johnson, both basically looking at that number and going, if you think that, or as Paul Johnson said, he was just like, I would not give you odds of one to 10 that that incredibly painful program of cuts to unprotected departments is going to happen. So there's basically the kind of austerity is back in rhetoric people who who think you can't do that and they will exist in budget documents, but they won't actually happen, broadly defined. And then there's the kind of other people who go, yeah, that's a big number and it will happen or it will happen a bit in addition to the already baked in cuts in austerity, particularly to local government and social care, which Anoush wrote a very good piece on. So I think, you know, the first thing is austerity with a combination of tax rises and spending cuts is back. 
and we I mean I haven't sat down and done the maths which I really should have sorry so in the last phase phase of austerity was something like 70 30 cuts to rises I suspect this is probably more 60 40 rises to cuts but it's obviously still a very austere budget on the back of 10 years of spending restraint so that's kind of one interesting thing is basically whether or not a whether the electorate or the public realm can withstand that Two, whether the rhetoric of it will continue to be popular, right? It's, I mean, one Conservative said to me a while, while, yeah, a long time before this budget was even thought of, and they said, yeah, the most successful place for the Conservative Party to be on fiscal matters is, is for a bunch of cuts to be announced but not to happen. And they said, so really, I guess what we ought to do is just announce a bunch of equally like impractical reform that we failed to deliver on as we did with universal credit. And we can just continue, like, oh, yeah, the cuts. When new schools come in, they will be cut. I think that argument has some merit to it politically. The second thing is that Rishi Sunak clearly believes that the British economy doesn't require all that much stimulus. There's the super deduction which will encourage people to move investment forward, but I think also one should yeah, then actually, if you look at the stimulus measures in this budget, ask yourself about, you know, obviously there are two economic challenges that this budget is having to respond to. The loss of our close trading relationship with the European Union and the coronavirus recession, then broadly all of the stimulus measures in it look more like they are designed around the EU membership. The fact that, I was about to say this is an article of faith, no, it's necessarily true, but it's definitely something that Rishi Sunak believes is that we will have more onshoring of, yeah, so things like vaccines will be, and PPE will become onshored in pretty much all countries. That's not really a sort of traditional stimulus measure in so, yeah, the kind of the plant and machinery, a super tax deduction. This is a budget by someone who doesn't think that the economy is going to need all that much of a push to recover from the coronavirus and that the economy will be strong enough to absorb two things. One, as Alva, you say, is the, the cut in universal credit in six months' time. Now, universal credit is, of course, its most important function, which arguably something doesn't do very well because of the extent to which benefits have fallen as a share of incomes over the, the last decade, is that it provides a safety net for people who really need it. But its important macroeconomic function is it provides a stabiliser to the economy in bad times. And the big thing you are betting on if there's a chance that you cut 20 quid is, is A, that you can survive politically the cost of the hardship you're causing, but also that the economy itself is not going to need that £20. Yeah, that, that aggregate twenty pounds, and also uh, the other kind of bet that he's made is that, and yes, the minimum wage increase is the smallest since twenty thirteen, but it is still a, a flaw in the statutory wage floor at a time when a large number, maybe not most, but definitely not all, but a large number of low wage sectors are particularly heavily affected by the economic effects of lockdown. Now, I think actually Rishi Sunak is probably right about the fact that the economy doesn't need all that much help coming out of the coronavirus recession. I think he probably should have done, he should have done more about private and household debt and have been, there's been accrued during the pandemic. But that's a slightly different set of policy interventions. But yeah, I think those are interesting things. Austerity is back, whether in fact or in rhetoric. And Rishi Sunak believes that the economy is not going to need all that much of a push to get out of the coronavirus recession. On that first point about austerity, Anush, you wrote about this yesterday do you think that, as Stephen was saying, this is this is a pretty austere budget. Do you feel like that kind of hasn't been reflected sufficiently in the coverage 
of it, especially because, you know, it's been a recurring theme on this podcast for, you know, the best part of a year, if not longer, that the conservatives at the last election were kind of implicitly standing on, you know, an end of austerity platform. And we've talked before about how austerity and the end of it are themselves kind of almost meaningless phrases because people will just, you know, interpret those in different ways that at the last election, some of the most overt austere rhetoric had ended, but a lot of cuts were still baked in. But now we're kind of properly back to it. And you took us through some of the details of that in your piece yesterday. So yeah, do you think that it hasn't been reflected sufficiently that this is this is actually a much more austere return to cuts and so on than you would get from some of the coverage? Yeah, I think so. I think that's right, because not least because Boris Johnson explicitly said towards the beginning of the crisis that austerity wouldn't be part of the recovery. And yeah, every chancellor, I think, since Philip Hammond, I I think, has been saying that the end of austerity is in sight or implicitly saying it. So we should take that as a marker and judge, you know, what the budget looks like compared with that you know, at least that tonal change. And I do think it hasn't really been appreciated, even with this budget, where it's very obvious, you know, what the future sort of course of of the recovery is going to look like in terms of tax rises and, and cuts. I don't think it has fully been appreciated. I was looking at the front pages this morning, and there's very much a kind of spend now, tax later line. And you know, some of these figures that he's spending on the rest of the coronavirus recovery are in their billions. And, you know, it all sounds very generous and like high numbers and also tax rises, particularly on firms, sounds like, you know, you're you're trying to get the most for your recovery out of the rich rather than off the backs of the poor, which I think covers up in a way uh, in terms of coverage, how far reaching some of these cuts are going to be. What's interesting is that, you know, there were there was £12 billion worth of cuts to departmental spending announced in the spending review last year. And yet still, I do think that the kind of because I think lots of our coverage, particularly in our print media, are focused around sort of right wing attacks on the government. The the whole kind of vibe of Rishi Sunak has been like, oh, he's being forced to be really generous and spend loads of money like a Labour chancellor when actually you know, he'd much rather get back to to a more austere agenda. But that sort of suggests that he hasn't been announcing cuts and he has the whole time. And, and there are more in this budget to come. Labour are, are going quite hard on the idea that there's £30 billion of cuts to the Department of Health. So on, on NHS funding, the government would argue that that's, that's because of the fall in money that, that that's going to be spent on the coronavirus response, because obviously they've had to ramp up spending so much during the pandemic. But the argument against that is that there is such a huge backlog for the NHS now, you know, all of the people that it didn't manage to treat during the pandemic. And and sort of like all of these pressures building up that they are going to have to work through after this second wave is over as they as they had to do briefly after the first wave in the summer, which one person who who runs a hospital who who I've spoken to sort of throughout this crisis told me was actually harder for some of the medics than 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 the pandemic phase so i think this symbolizes the fact that there's that particular cut symbolizes what i think is the most interesting thing about this budget which shows the lack of ambition to change britain and its economy after the pandemic passes labor's whole argument is that we should recover in a sort of new way and obviously 
the government has this rhetoric of build back better, but there's no there's no sign of building back better in this in this budget. Stephen mentioned, you know, the the, the measures that Rishi Sunak wants to bring in to replace or to try and um, rebuild from what we've lost from leaving the EU, and of course those things are going to make the economy look different. But there's no real ambition to try and solve the inequality in this country that has been so exposed by the pandemic, as well as the sort of public services that have been run ragged for for so long. So it, it is a bit strange that that there isn't that vision there. Maybe it's too early to have a vision like that, but. Obviously, every single thing that he announced in this budget is going to have long-term effects. So it looks like they want to go back to business as usual afterwards. And as we know from many of the areas that have suffered during the pandemic, particularly social care, which wasn't even mentioned in the budget, which we've been waiting for a plan for for so long, we know that those areas have suffered and, and, and there doesn't seem to be any plan in place to trying to, to make tomorrow's world better than, than the kind of society that we were living in when we went into this crisis. I mean, I can't believe that you don't think moving a treasury campus to Darlington <laughs> will level us up anoush. <laughs> and eight free ports. Mm. The free ports thing is fascinating to me because so I know this is a little bit like that old Jewish joke about, you know, this restaurant is terrible in such small portions. But the theory of a free port is you you move economic activity to within an area, right? If you have eight free ports in a country of our size, are you really going to get that benefit? It doesn't seem likely. But actually the kind of, the geography point and, and your point in about like not building back better, I think speaks to the other really interesting thing to me about this budget, which is there was very little, I nothing at all, to prevent. Let's imagine that I'm the CFO of the New Statesman. Right. And I've decided that decided that you're going to give me a pay rise. (laughs) I've decided actually I'm going to cut your office space. (laughs) I've decided, you know, it's not necessary for us to have our nice building in the Strand. We obviously need to retain the parliamentary desk. (laughs) But that brick and mortar building. Yeah, we're going to leave our lease. We're going to get rid of that building. And we will have a very small amount of, of office estate for entertainment and, you know, maybe onboarding and inductions. And that, that story is playing itself out throughout the economy, right? Lots of places are, are deciding, deciding to do that. I would strongly emphasize that I'm not becoming our CFO, and that is a pure hypothetical. <laughs> if you are, cons- and I think the right has ended up in this fascinatingly incoherent position on this, right? In, you pick up any right-wing newspaper, or you follow any right-wing commentator on Twitter, and they're continually going, you know, people, oh, office workers need to understand that the economy works on people coming in, and agglomeration, and just like, guys, if, if you have a problem with this, your problem is what bosses are going to do. Realistically, I would love to live in a country with strong enough trade union and labour market rights than mm-hmm. the factor on, on whether or not the office returns are going to be the aggregate preferences of workers. But I don't live in that country. I live in the United Kingdom in 2021. And unless, unless there's something in this budget to change you know, Stephen Bush CFO's calculation of the risks and benefits, now in reality, one of the reasons why, of course, media organisations are bad examples, and I suspect one of the reasons why media coverage of this in general has been quite bad, is creative industries have a much more obvious direct benefit from the kind of in-person stuff. But unless you're doing something as a, you know, as a business to say, yeah, so as a government to say, no, we are going to actively prevent, yeah, we're going to actively disincentivize you from realising the supposed savings of, of paring back your office space, then the next couple of years are going to be quite 
painful, quite economically disruptive anyway. And the slight weird thing is, is the, which I mean, it's not really that surprising, but the other weird thing about this budget is very much a kind of, we'll press this button, people will go back into offices, and the only thing that will stop them going back into offices is something we can fix by exhorting workers to get back on their trains and get back in their cars and commute into their town and city centres. When the reality is, yeah, that, that ain't the problem as far as the end of, of office working is concerned. And you've written your column this week, Stephen, about the sort of the new contours of of the political debate to come, which I think we did see quite a lot of yesterday. We saw the shape of the case that Rishi Sunak wants to make, so sort of financial responsibility with that sort of sprinkling of levelling up and green investment on top versus Keir Starmer saying that after a decade of conservative rule, we didn't go into the into the coronavirus pandemic with much economic resilience and that the Conservatives don't really have a a serious or ambitious plan to address any of the vulnerabilities that were exposed by the crisis. But I think the thing that's quite interesting is whether that will work for Rishi Sunak because, as we were just saying, the Conservatives in 2019 did stand on a manifesto that was you know, about the end of austerity, about investment, about levelling up. Boris Johnson, you know, famously loves building bridges and tunnels. And I just wonder, you can see the case that Rishi Sunak is making, that it's worth leaning in to this public perception that the Conservatives are better at managing the finances than Labour. You can see the case that he's trying to make while also conceding to Boris Johnson's desire to, you know, do big infrastructure projects and to and to deliver on their 2019 commitments. But you just wonder that like, that's quite a small tightrope to walk. What do both of you think about like whether that's going to unravel in the years to come or whether the shape of that conservative electoral message can actually be sustained for the next few years? Yeah, I think um, at times Boris Johnson has won the argument in terms of keeping restrictions in place. But at times, Rishi Sunak has won the argument. And I think this budget was an example of him winning the argument because all of the supposed levelling up policies that were announced in the budget and you know those that they've announced previously as well, just don't do what the sort of Boris Johnson style vision of of focusing on on infrastructure and rebalancing the regions in terms of their their infrastructure and and local economies are concerned. I just don't think they they do what he would like them to do in his in his vision. Mainly because there's not enough actual power being devolved to the towns and the regions that are receiving some of the funding. And also because the there is such an imbalance in in where the funding is being focused. So I think what's going to come under a great deal of scrutiny now is the levelling up fund, which is quite similar to the, the, the Towns Fund, which has had a lot of scrutiny for the places where the money is being directed to being, you know, Tory marginals or or in constituencies that are represented by Tory MPs, particularly those who won in 2019. There's been quite a lot of coverage of the levelling up funding going to regions that include Rishi Sunak's seat and Robert Jenrick's seat as well, which come lower in the deprivation index than other areas that have been given lower priority. So, I mean, that's a sort of political argument, but it also shows that Perhaps this levelling up agenda is more to do with winning votes and being able to say the right things at the right time in the electoral cycle 
than actually leveling up. And I think that the main bit of evidence that shows that this isn't actually going to happen and that there will be that divide between the two ministers' visions is that councils just don't have any money. You know, there are a bunch of councils in February that had to get emergency bailouts from the government. It didn't get very much coverage, but it really should have done because if your town hall can't deliver services to to its residents, then how on earth are you supposed to be levelling up the country? It doesn't, doesn't make sense to me. I know local government isn't sexy and that any announcements on the issue are not going to be as exciting as, as, as coming up with some new high street fund or town regeneration project. But really, you do need to get those foundations in place and the Public Accounts Committee have predicted that more councils are going to go bankrupt. So until they sort that out, I just don't believe them because they, they don't have the foundations there to make these local places that they're, they're obsessed with saying that they, they want to improve. They're just going to have no hope of doing that unless they actually focus on the fundamentals. I think it's a really interesting and good question. I always feel guilty about giving this answer because I know it's a slightly uh, grim thing to say about a real thing. But this is the thing that to me is, actually really interesting is then what we what we don't know is to what extent was the 2017 election and the whole run-up to it and by the whole run-up to it I mean the election of Corbyn Brexit happening to what extent was all of that then basically you know the government had reached the frontiers of what it could do in terms of cuts without bits of its coalition popping off things it didn't want to happen happening the Labour Party yeah having a a huge revolution in in how it organised itself Right, to what extent are all of those things consequences of the same thing that lead to the Conservative Party losing its majority in 2017? And to what extent are they causes, right? In the one view is that you just would reach the end as a country of, of where you could do cuts without people visibly noticing. And then the first symptom of that was the Labour Party rank and file decide decision to back Jeremy Corbyn. The second consequence was the, the defeat of tax credit cuts in the Lords and by rebel Conservative backbenchers. The next was, obviously, the vast majority of the votes Brexit did so because they wanted to leave the EU. But obviously, you don't need to move that many votes for David Cameron to still be Prime Minister today. All of that stuff follows from, from the, yeah, from austerity just becoming undeliverable. And then, bam, that reality hits, hits the wall of the electorate in 2017. You know, despite lots of spinning about how Theresa May was, you know, moving to the left, you know, still sort of austerity in fact and in rhetoric from Philip Hampton, right? That's kind of theory one. And you would then go, well, what happened in 2019 was then by increasing spending on schools, police and hospitals, they were able a bit to kind of do that austerity is over. And then there's an open question about whether or not any of that spending matters, right? If you are spending more money on police, less money on so you know, on, you know social work, local authorities, do you just end up in a situation where there's more police but people feel more unsafe anyway for other reasons, right? Do you have more money going to the NHS but less money going to everyone else? Do you just end up with endemic bed blocking, crisis in social care? You know, all of that kind of stuff. And that would basically lead you to go, yeah, you can you can do what Philip Hammond and Sajid Javid did post twenty nine pre-2019, and that allows you to grit out an election in very limited and situation-specific circumstances. But if you keep pressing the button marked austerity, then one day you just wake up and your electoral coalition has fallen apart, as indeed as much of the public realm. That's kind of theory one. Theory two is the problem in 2017 was Philip Hammond did not have, I was about to say, a prominent role. I mean, had no role in the general election campaign. There was no economic argument made by the Conservatives. They made no attempt to rebut, rebut Labour's arguments. Yeah, Labour faced no direct attack from the Tories on, on economic credibility because the Conservatives had no economic message. 
And then what happened in 2017 is what happens when you, you quit the pitch. Now, and founder is, is and of course, everything that the Tories did under Boris Johnson from June 2019, and quite a lot of what May and Hammond did, albeit in very different directions, in that May thought the big thing was tuition fees, Hammond thought the big thing was you know, visible symbols of austerity like potholes and homelessness. Everything the Conservative Party has done up until now has been based around the idea that broadly most of the cuts have reached their political end. You just can't do any more. And yet they had to spend more in order to see off Jeremy Corbyn. Now, the Rishi Sunak argument is interesting because actually what he is arguing explicitly to MPs and what he did yesterday is basically go, no, I think the issue was Philip Hammond didn't have a big enough role in the 2017 election. And if we don't have a clear economic dividing line, then what happened is the 2017 election result. Either of those, and obviously I've, there's a, there's lots of middle ground that I've, I've artificially kind of destroyed there in order to be somewhat succinct. Either of those is plausible. And I kind of think that is the thing we're going to find out over the next four years. If you've been enjoying our podcast and want to find out more about what we think and some of our colleagues too, then why not subscribe to The New Statesman? You can get 12 weeks for £12. Go to newstatesman.com forward slash subscribe 12. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. And now it's time for a section we like to call You You Ask Us. So we've had lots of questions about the the Alex Salmond investigation inquiry. The question we're going to kick off with would just be simply, has Nicola Sturgeon done enough to keep her job in her appearances at the inquiry into her government's handling of harassment complaints against her predecessor, Alex Salmond? What do you think, Anish? Do you think she's sort of done enough to, to save her position for now? I think if you go off her performance at the Holyrood inquiry yesterday where she was questioned for eight hours, I think you would think that her position is probably safe because she put in a really quite unflustered and strong performance. I mean, she a lot of the people who were commenting on the on on the inquiry rather than being distracted by the budget were noting how, you know, it it was just a sign of how impressive a, a politician that she is that she can undergo that level of questioning for so long and come out relatively unscathed. Our own Scotland editor Chris Deeran wrote that she handled it with suppleness and surgical precision, which, you know, we perhaps shouldn't be very surprised by, particularly recently, we've seen the way that she's responded to the crisis in Scotland and and that it has generally been well received by people who are polled in Scotland so far. So I think her performance was good. 
I think the the strongest thing that she did, which I thought was probably the most impressive angle, was that she did try and resurrect that that whole atmosphere and the feeling and the passion and and the hurt that was brought up around the Me Too era. So sort of that 2017, 2018 time when everyone really started searching within themselves and, you know, a lot of people's behaviour was exposed in high profile organisations. And she really tried to to bring that feeling back into people's memories. So she spoke about not wanting to follow the age old pattern of allowing a powerful man to use his status and connections to get what he wants. She also kind of just tried to remind us of that climate throughout giving her giving her evidence. She said it was a reflection of the invidious, almost impossible position a lot of people found themselves in during that during that time. Talking about how decades long relationships have been ripped apart, and you know how friends and colleagues all had different things to say, and it was very difficult to try and reconcile. You know what someone was being accused of with the people who who were making the allegations, particularly in a party where, you know, her and Salmon were longtime allies. So she kind of really humanised the the kind of dilemma and, and the situation that she was in at the time, which I thought was quite clever because I think almost everyone can relate to friendships being torn apart by Me Too revelations and um, and everyone can remember the kind of fervour of that time. So I thought that was quite interesting. But there is another inquiry into specifically into whether she breached the ministerial code. And that's also going to report before the Holyrood election. So I think that's something that we need to keep an eye on as well. I don't think she's she's got off scot-free, sorry for the pun, so far. <laughs> well, it's, it's, it's interesting. So I am... Um... I have this slightly surreal thing of, of effectively watching it on a slight time delay. Yeah. In that I would watch it, I would cover, yeah, I watched, I started watching it, the budget happened, I went back to watching it during the various breaks. I, I, I think I basically, I basically think I made up the time, so I ended up finishing only about an hour after it actually finished. Now, it seems to me, right, there are, oh, it's that favourite time, Stephen commits to a numbered list. There are <laughs> three scenarios under which Nicola Sturgeon could have to resign, right? So obviously this inquiry is looking into the Scottish government's handling of these allegations against Alex Salmond, right? Scenario one, and this is broadly the argument being advanced by Alex Salmond and by some of his allies, which is that there was a conspiracy between members of the SNP leadership and the Scottish government to diminish his reputation to potential upper end of, of fitting him up and him going to prison. Right. That's obviously a scenario which, if that were found to be the case, Nicola Sturgeon would have to resign. Scenario two is that these allegations, yeah, regardless of their truth, were looked into in such an appallingly handled way that it was impossible for the women to get justice. And this was directly due to yeah, bad decisions made by Nicola Sturgeon herself. Right, And then, of course, it's hard to see how she wouldn't have to resign. Argument three would be that the SNP had long known that there were serious, incredible allegations about Alex Salmond floating around. And then in the wake of the Me Too movement, the party leadership and the Scottish government's leadership panicked when we've just got to be seen to be tough on this problem we know we have. And then everything then went wrong with the investigation into it flowed from that, that central mistake. Then those are basically the three situations in which this inquiry could produce something which would cause Nicola Sturgeon to have to resign. And one of the things I think has been the, the, the story, not just of, of yesterday's session, but of, of, of basically everything that the Holyrood Inquiry has done, is the, the reason why I don't think this inquiry is going to bear any fruit in terms of the obvious aim of 
most of the opposition members of the committee is that if you asked most of them, which one of those scenarios do you think is is, is it? Which one are you aiming for? They'd go, uh, pass. Whereas Nicola Sturgeon, unless she is the best actor in the world, not just is she the best actor in the world, but she has been deliberately performing the role of someone who, for all her undoubted political strengths, is not someone I would say is good at the thing I'm about to describe, in order to carry off this... Yeah, then, unless your argument is that Nicola Sturgeon has been like being like a bit sort of like... I'm awkward but competent and firm, and I do this kind of odd sort of head bob when I'm feeling a bit pressed. Unless your argument, she has been performing that routine since the 90s in order to one day be able to plausibly look like someone who, whether she is right or wrong, clearly, sincerely believes the allegations against Alex Salmon to have been true, right? So unless you think that, that, that we are watching a kind of Oscar-winning performance for the ages... That is clearly where she is. Whereas, with the exception of Jackie Bailey, I don't think any of the opposition MSPs really have an idea what it is they're hoping for, what they think they're trying to find. Now, obviously, when you have an inquiry, sometimes what you think you're trying to find is not, in fact, the case. But if your questions aren't trying to sincerely find something out, you're probably not going to find something out. This was an inquiry which, you know, at one point you have, you know, members of the committee barking at her when she forgets to say alleged. Now, obviously, they did need to get her to correct record because they are only allegations. But it's one of those things where if on the one hand you're barking at someone, then, then it's alleged. You can't then have a situation where later on in the day, another uh, Scottish MSP, Modo Fraser, then goes, are you going to apologise to the country for the fact that, that it turns out that, that he may done these things because it's just like well it wasn't clear from murder fraser's questions up until that point whether he thought that he had right and this is I, I think that to me is the biggest reason why i just cannot envisage a situation where this inquiry causes her to have to go or any of the other inquiries because okay now you, you can sometimes the other example of this is, is is yvette cooper ending amber rudd's home office career where Yvette Cooper quite clearly didn't really have an idea of what Amber Rudd had done wrong other than not being on top of it, right? I don't think that Yvette Cooper knew that Amber Rudd was sufficiently not on top of it that when she was asked, do you have targets for a manifesto commitment, she was going to go, no, we don't. That is a level of grip that I think that I do think it's one of those things where everyone has kind of almost forgotten that while it was clearly a good question because it exposed a problem, the the level of the quality of the question has been hyped up at the expense of people understanding just how bad it was that Amber Rudd fell foul of that question. But you could tell that broadly all of Yvette Cooper's questions were based on this idea of, I don't think you're on top of this, I don't think you're competent, and I think that if I keep asking competence questions, oh, that will unravel. Whereas broadly, most of the questions Nicola Sturgeon is being asked in these inquiries can be boiled down to an MSP standing up and going, I don't like you and I don't like Scottish independence. And some of the questions are just people standing up and going, I don't like you, but I do like Scottish independence. Some are going, I do like you, I don't like you, I don't like trans, but I do like Scottish independence. But you know, what? like none of those things, <laughs> none of those are going to be questions that yield answers which cause her to have to stand down. And that to me is, I think, like my central take hope of all of this is that I think someone who doesn't follow politics closely, who watched like a clip of this on the six or the, the nine, or I was actually listening to it on music radio, but, but because of, of various cuts of BBC funding, they will just hear news from London, London and England. I think will have gone, okay, she might have messed up, but she clearly sincerely believes in this. There's a problem. 
these and oh these other people they're they're practically salivating over this they're enjoying it which is just distasteful um with the exception of, yeah there are a couple of exceptions of whom jackie bailey has been the one who's quite rightly got most of the the plaudits because i think she's consistently been the person who's been trying to find answers but yeah i just think it means that she has no prospect of being done in by these inquiries although the internal battle in the smp is another question entirely what do you think alba i agree with both of you that i think because of not just the way Nicola Sturgeon has framed it, but just like the way in which this is just framed, whether she does it consciously or not, the way in which we're looking at this through the lens of Me Too and the sort of the gender politics of this, and also that personal relationship between Nicola Sturgeon and Alex Salmond. I think it means that the burden for Nicola Sturgeon having personally messed up on this and that being a sackable offence is very, very high. Like she is not tasked with proving that she never made a mistake in this and she's sort of freely admitted to to making those mistakes. But that that's sort of all basically pardonable due to the context that you've both outlined. And so I think that for, it's sort of for that reason I think that she's probably safe throughout. I think those two interwoven human things of the personal complicatedness of how she related to her predecessor, her former mentor, her friend going, stretching back decades, how she was relating to him and communicating to him and also the the wider politics of it and the importance of, of looking into certain allegations and as you say you know clearly the implicit belief on her part that these allegations were true I think yeah for that reason she is in a pretty safe position and I also think that the thing that this inquiry and the way it's being talked about doesn't really like the thing that that gets left out because it's just on the level of an inquiry and and covering the inquiry is that I just think overall, even though loads of people have political problems with Nicola Sturgeon and the SNP doing really well in Scotland, I think even despite that, there is just not very much appetite, I think, anywhere to see the casualty of very serious allegations against this prominent male politician being the female first minister of Scotland. I just think that loads of people, whether they are following this a little bit or not at all, would find it perverse that at the end of this process, the person who had to resign, whose career was damaged, was the woman looking into it. And I, like, there's clearly not much space in, in the discussion around this for people to say that because it is on the technicalities of how this was handled by the government and so on. But I just think that when push comes to shove, that's where a lot of people are with this. And for that reason, Nicola Sturgeon has the wind at her back, I think. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Alva Ray, and my colleagues, Stephen Bush and Anush Shekelian. You can find me on Twitter at Pronounced Alva. You can find me on Twitter at Anoush underscore C. You can find me on Twitter at at Stephen KB. We're produced by Nick Hilton and our music is Devil with the Devil, licensed under Creative Commons. Thanks for listening. Please remember to rate and subscribe.
Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.